joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Christopher Langley, a barrister at Fountain Court. On this episode, we discuss the background and evolution of the Quinscare duty, which is a duty on a bank to refrain from executing a customer's order where the bank is put on inquiry in the sense that the bank has reasonable grounds for believing that the order is an attempt to defraud the customer. This has become a particularly hot topic following decisions in cases such as Singularis, and more recently, in high-profile cases such as Philip and Barclays and the Federal Republic of Nigeria and JP Morgan, all of which we speak about in the episode. We also touch upon the ongoing Stanford International Bank and HSBC matter, a case in which I'm instructed, which involves a Quinscare claim, and at the time of recording, is awaiting judgment from the Supreme Court. Joining me in the discussion are Rosalind Phelps QC, a silk at Fountain Court who specializes in large-scale disputes spanning banking, commercial, arbitration, aviation, fraud, and professional negligence. As Ros mentions during our discussion, she recently acted for JP Morgan in its high-profile defense of claims brought by the Federal Republic of Nigeria, including in relation to the Quinscare duty, and which was the subject of a widely reported high court judgment handed down in June 2022. Ros is ranked by both Chambers and Partners and the Legal 500 for her work across various areas, including banking. I'm also joined by George Hall, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Commercial Disputes Group. George has acted in a number of heavy-duty, high-profile and multi-jurisdictional commercial disputes, contentious regulatory investigations and arbitration proceedings. He's worked on some of the most complex cases in the London Commercial Court and has particular expertise in banking disputes. He's also been seconded to two international investment banks in the past and is recognized by the Legal 500 as a leading banking and commercial litigation lawyer. In this episode, we discuss the origins of the Quinscare duty, where it is today, following various attempts to expand its scope, and we are either brave enough or perhaps foolish enough to give our thoughts on where we might go from here. I'm very grateful to our speakers for joining me in what I found to be a very interesting and topical discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. George, can we start at the beginning? Could you talk us through the origins of the Quinscare duty and how it developed in the early stages? Yeah, sure. So I'll just give a brief background on Quinscare. And so... This was a case that concerned a loan that was made by Barclays to Quincecare for the purchase of four chemist shops. And once that loan was approved, there was a request by the fraudster, Mr. Stiller, to transfer money to solicitors who acted for him. The money was transferred and then it was transferred from the solicitors to a bank account in the US and Mr. Stiller effectively absconded. So the bank sued the company, Quinscare, and also the guarantor to recover the misappropriated monies. And in response, the company argued that there was an implied duty of care in the customer bank mandate, and that if a reasonable banker had reason to question whether the transaction was truly authorized by the customer and for the customer, the banker was under a duty of inquiry. If no inquiry was made, then negligence is established, and then the quantum of, da- of damages is a loss suffered as a result. So I think what's quite interesting in the case is that the judge pointed out that there is a tension with the quince care duty because it often runs up against 
the general duty on the bank to execute a customer's orders to transfer money. So the judge was saying that the law shouldn't be too burdensome on bankers, but at the same time, it should exact uh, what he called a reasonable standard of care in order to combat fraud and protect bank customers and innocent third parties. So Again, this is something that we'll come on to and talk about. There is, within Quinscare itself, there is this tension between what the duties are on the bank and in which instances they need to act in order to execute the order and in which instances they also need to refrain and make further inquiries if they're put on notice of the fraud. So I think the next, so that's sort of the, the actual duty itself in Quinscare. And then Quinscare is followed quite shortly after by Lipkin and Gorman. And so this case involved um, a partner at a law firm who cast checks from the firm's client account and then used them to pay for chips in a casino. And a firm brought an action against the club and the bank seeking to recover the money that he'd stolen. And I think this case is important because it's a court of appeal decision and it essentially approved the decision in Quince Care. But what's interesting, again, with this case and also with, with Quince Care is that Although they affirmed the actual duty itself on both instances on the facts, there was, it was held that there wasn't, the bank wasn't put on notice of the fraud. So essentially both those claims ultimately failed. And then what, what seems to happen then is there is a gap between these decisions that take place in the early nineties. And then there's nothing essentially until Singularis, which is in 2017. So Singularis is the first case where liability was actually found. After a trial, yes, and, and liability in terms of money being paid over yeah. uh, by way of damages. Do you think that caused claimants to wake up to Quinscare in terms of a viable way of holding banks responsible? And why do you think it took so long? Yeah, I, th- I think it certainly did. And I think what's quite interesting, as I was just talking about before, is that there was this sort of hiatus, I suppose, in terms of these cases in the early 90s. And then it's only in Singularis that it actually succeeds. And then since then, what we've obviously seen is a number of other cases that have now been pursued by claimants against banks that have actually gone quite far up. So Singularis went to the Supreme Court. And obviously, we'll come on to talk about the Nigeria case, the Stanford case. And and I think it's, I think you're right. I think what people have actually established is that even though Previously, they understood that the duty existed. There was actually ability to succeed on it, which is obviously something that hadn't previously happened. And do you think that's because the way in which the duty is framed is quite restrictive? Or do we think it's just the facts of those particular decisions were difficult for those claimants to get over the line? Are we looking at that from a, a duty point of view or is it just a fact specific issue? Well, I think what's quite interesting in Singularis is that there was no appeal on the actual facts point. So it was just accepted that there was the breach and none of that seemed to be challenged. And then I think what's also quite interesting, we'll come on to talk about this. I think when we talk about the Ros, the, the Peter Watts article is how there is just this acceptance of the duty was always there and, and always existed. So, I mean, I think. I think it is probably a case that there was maybe not the facts that had actually been around in order to establish the breach of the duty and that once that happened, that is what's been the trigger for these further raft of claims. It's quite interesting you say that the duty has been sitting there for quite a long period of time without actually being challenged as a matter of principle. So, Ros, should we be treating Quinscare as entirely orthodox or something slightly more controversial? 
Well, I think it's inevitably orthodox now because it has been to the Supreme Court twice and to the Privy Council once. And, and as George says, nobody has actually ever taken the point that the duty shouldn't be there at all. So I think that that ship has sailed, although it's not without its controversy because there is a fairly well-known um, article or series of articles by Professor Peter Watts, uh, who's, who's a door tenant here at Fountain Court, in which he has seriously challenged the rationality and the existence of the duty. And his firm view is that it is completely misconceived as a matter of law and represents really a, a, a wrong turning by the law. And uh, in the Nigeria case that I'll come on to talk about in, in a moment, the judge in that case was was aware of that article and mentions it in her judgment. But as she says, it's not uncontroversial, but the existence of the duty is well established. And, and that's obviously what she follows in that case. So I think the ship has sailed to challenge the existence of the duty, but it is a difficult one because, as George says, the tension between the, the primary duty on the bank to obey its customer and this conflicting duty to disobey its customer in circumstances where it suspects that there's a fraud. So we'll just have to continue to grapple with that. That's probably a good time to talk actually about the more recent attempts to extend the scope of the duty as we understand it, from the traditional case of a rogue director misappropriating the funds of the company. I have in mind the Court of Appeals decision in Philip and Barclays. George, can you talk us through the Philip case and why it's significant? Yeah, sure. So Philip and Barclays, so the facts of the case are pretty extraordinary. It seems to be that fraudsters approached um, an elderly couple, essentially claiming that they acted for the FCA and the NCA, and that they were investigating alleged fraud that was happening at the HSBC branch of the bank where the elderly couple had an account. And so what happened was that the fraudsters managed to convince the couple to transfer money to what they said was a safe account in Barclays. And then from there, it was then transferred onto the fraudsters account in Dubai. So like in some of the other cases that we'll talk about in a minute, the bank applied to have the claim struck out on the basis that the quince care duty on banks didn't extend to when a customer authorised the payment themselves. So previously, um, as you alluded to, the cases were limited to corporate clients where its agents, for example, directors misappropriated funds and so there was no true authorization. So it didn't apply to what was called an external fraud where the customer was duped by a third party. The bank won at first instance, but it was overturned by the Court of Appeal earlier this year. And it was decided that duty did extend to customers who were themselves the victims of the fraud. So I think we understand that that Court of Appeal decision is being appealed to the Supreme Court. But I mean, assuming that that decision is upheld, it will then go then back to the High Court to be decided because it was just a strikeout point. And I think the suggestion from that is that there's obviously going to be issues as to whether, even though the duty could apply in this instance, whether it does actually apply on the facts, because I think some of the facts, as I said, in this case are pretty extraordinary. And that's quite a significance, isn't it? Because these APP frauds, as we understand them, are becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah. So do we think this is a real issue potentially for the wider banking industry? 
Yeah, I think it certainly is in the sense that it's something that I think will certainly be pleaded a lot more regularly by claimants in these types of claims. I mean, I think there may also be another way whereby customers can actually get that relief and that we'll come on to talk about that later on in relation to some changes to primary legislation. But I think, yes, certainly in terms of the actual cases that we'll see, I think that was, assuming it's not overturned by the Supreme Court, it's something that's going to be pleaded a lot more regularly going forward. And banks won't be able to strike it out, whereas previously they could on this point of principle that the Queen's Care doesn't apply to external fraud where the customer is being duped by a third party rather than by their own agent, as in all other previous Queen's Care cases. So that route has gone for banks. I think George is right, it will get pleaded and at the moment can't be struck out. We had a, another strikeout case in the Stanford International Bank in HSBC matter. And perhaps because I acted in that, it's probably best for me to explain a little bit about what that case is all about. It's essentially a large-scale international fraud. It's a claim brought by an insolvent banking operation in Antigua, which in early 2009 was discovered to be a massive Ponzi scheme. The sole shareholder of Stanford International Bank, who we generally in the case called SIB or SIB, was Sir Alan Stanford. And he was the larger-than-life Texan billionaire, or at least purported billionaire, who made quite a stir in the media when he started to fund English cricket and landed his helicopter in the middle of Lord's Cricket Ground. There's actually a multi-part documentary about him on Sky called Something Like The Man Who Bought Cricket, which is worth a watch for anybody interested. And HSBC was one of the many banks around the world, actually, who provided correspondent banking services to SIB. And SIB alleges that HSBC was on notice of the fraud and should have frozen the accounts such that millions of pounds would have remained available to SIB when it eventually entered into insolvent liquidation. So those funds could then be distributed amongst the creditors. And that was important in this case because, as you might expect, with a large international Ponzi fraud, there was a massive shortfall in assets in this case, to the tune of some $5 billion. And there were two parts to the claim. The first part was the Quinscare claim. It was alleged that with all of the information available to HSBC across the entire history of its relationship with SIB, that there was enough, at least when taken together, to put HSBC on notice of a potential Ponzi scheme. The second limb was a dishonest assistance claim. And you'll see actually in Singularis and other cases of this nature, you find them coming as a pair, actually. And in our case, in the SIB case, this was largely based on a novel concept of corporate recklessness. And that was essentially an allegation of dishonesty against a company in circumstances where no one single individual within that company was alleged to have been dishonest. And so, of course... All of that was denied by HSBC on the merits, but we haven't had a trial in the matter yet because we instead had a summary judgment strikeout application. And I should quickly say that a dishonest assistance claim was struck out by Mr. Justice Nugy, and that decision was upheld by the Court of Appeal. It's not the current topic, so I don't need to get into it too much, but essentially the Court of Appeal found that dishonesty requires there to be an individual within the company that had been dishonest. And the idea of corporate recklessness outside of that concept was rejected. And there was no appeal on that point to the Supreme Court. 
And Chris, just jumping in there, I think that the fact that these claims often come in these pairs of dishonest assistance and Quince Care, like in Singularis itself, explains why Quince Care is so popular because it's much more difficult to establish dishonesty and recklessness on the part of the of the bank. And obviously that didn't get off the ground in your case and it failed in Singularis. But on very similar facts, as Singularis itself shows, you can succeed on negligence and lose on dishonest assistance, hence why it is perhaps becoming more popular. Well, quite. And in Singularis, of course, the judge found there were glaring signs of fraud. That was part of the findings of fact which established the Quinscare claim. That's still even in, Exactly, even in that situation. And I think as we develop, actually in the, in the Stanford case itself, you're getting these large-scale international frauds, which are not based on the individual customer coming into a bank, speaking to a bank manager whom they know very well. We're getting huge amounts of transactions across the board, internationally based with SWIFT transactions, electronic payments, where the bank is being alleged to have failed to monitor thousands of transactions effectively. And so you are getting, I think, further away from a traditional dishonesty analysis there. And it's probably one of the reasons why in the in the SIB case, they tried to have this wider concept of corporate recklessness, because you couldn't find a single person who had responsibility and knowledge for a finding of dishonesty. And so just turning back to the Quinscare claim, what we had was actually an unusual set of facts in Stanford, because unlike the traditional case of a misappropriation by a rogue director, where he or she is taking funds from the company straight into his or her own pockets, or to an entity to whom they're connected, the unusual feature was around 98% of all of the payments in our case went to genuine third-party creditors. So SIB was an international banking organization who had its own customers. They had contractual rights to receive payments when they redeemed their investments. And they redeemed them and they were paid. And the Privy Council found, following an attempt by the liquidators from Antigua to unwind those transactions, that they were, they were good and they discharged those obligations. So we had a no-loss argument to say there was no net loss because for every pound paid out, it discharged a pound of liabilities, no balance sheet loss, no consequential loss was pleaded. And that was the end of the matter from the Quinscare point of view. And, and that's the issue which the Court of Appeal found in HSBC's favour and is subject to the appeal before the Supreme Court. Putting to one side summary judgment and strikeout applications, We've actually had a recent judgment after a full trial. And Ros, that's your case in the Federal Republic of Nigeria and JP Morgan Chase. Can you talk us through what that case was about and what was decided? Yeah, so again, it's another case on the facts which moves away from that traditional quince care scenario of the director coming in to uh, cash a cheque and uh, involves a very large payment made by the defendant bank on behalf of its customer, who was the federal government of Nigeria, which had opened an account specifically for the purpose of facilitating a very large payment under a settlement agreement that it had reached in relation to a disputed oil field. Now, there was corruption alleged in relation to this oil field, which went back to 1998 and which was actually well-known 
and had led to a lot of litigation with various parties. And the position of the government in 2011, when the payment was made, was that it wanted to settle all of that litigation and make a payment in order to draw a line under the disputes. And the bank opened an account that was akin to an escrow account, a special purpose account, just for the reason of uh, applying these funds for that particular payment only. And it was said by the claimant, which was essentially a new government that had come into power after this 2011 government, that the settlement itself was corrupt and because it was made to a party that, that wasn't entitled to the monies and shouldn't have received them because of the original corruption around the granting of the oil field in 1998. And it said that the bank was negligent in making the payments and should have realized that that the payment was part of a corrupt process that involved the bribery of the 2011 government and that it should have been obvious to the bank and that the payment shouldn't have been made. So the facts were fairly unusual. The judgment that was handed down in April rejected the claim by the Federal Republic of Nigeria essentially on two bases. The first one was that the court found that the claimant hadn't in fact proved that there was a fraud at all. So that was quite an unusual situation because in all of the other previous cases, the existence of the fraud, for example, Mr. Stiller in the Quinscare case or the partner in Lipkin Gorman, it was obvious that an individual had been acting corruptly. But in the present case, the claimant had to prove that there was a fraud, prove that the 2011 government had been corrupted and it had failed to do that on the facts. So in a sense, the claim failed at the first hurdle, didn't get off the ground. The second basis for rejecting the claim was that the judge found that the bank hadn't acted negligently or alternatively that in relation to one of the payments that it hadn't acted with gross negligence. And the reason why that was a requirement was because the contract between the bank and the customer exempted the bank from liability unless it had been grossly negligent. So in relation to the bulk of the payments, it wasn't on notice at all of any fraud. And in relation to one of the later ones, the court found, well, it may have been on notice, but it certainly wasn't grossly negligent. So the claim was rejected. Ros, is that going to be a way in which banks can try and protect themselves by introducing contractual terms such as gross negligence? Well, certainly it can. And and in fact, in in this particular case, uh, the bank did apply for summary judgment on the basis of some of the other contractual terms, not that one. But there were other contractual terms in the agreement between the bank and the customer, including a term that the only duties owed to the customer were the ones set out expressly in the in the agreement. So there were various arguments that the contractual terms had in fact excluded Quinscare, but that argument was rejected at first instance and in the Court of Appeal. Uh, and it's pretty obvious following that judgment that banks will need to have very clear language if they want to exclude the possibility of a Quinscare claim because general language about excluding duties and and excluding obligations other than those that are expressly set out in the contract won't do, may need to spell it out expressly. But the one term 
which did have an impact on the claim, was this one about gross negligence? So that that turned out to be pivotal in relation to one of the payments. And what I found interesting about that judgment, or at least one of the things, not to say the only thing, was the way in which the judge treated the fraud and its connection to the payment instruction. And it seemed to me as if you need something more than a generalized fear or kind of notice of generalized fraud. It has to be tied to the specific instruction. I mean, is that, is that a way in which these cases, large-scale frauds, actually might be more difficult to establish under Quinn's care? Well, I think that is definitely one important aspect of the decision. So the, the judge in that case has said that when you look at whether the bank is on notice in the first place, as you say, it's not enough to point to generalized features, which might give rise to suspicion. The notice in question has to tie back to the particular fraud. So in this case, it was alleged that it was the attorney general in 2011 who had been corrupt and he'd been the one who was responsible for for negotiating the settlement and, and had had some dealings with the bank. And so it followed that the thing that the bank had to be on notice of was his corruption in particular. And that was the focus of the judgment. So yes, I think you're right. I think that that is a way in which the duty can be potentially more limited. It's not enough to say that the circumstances generally are suspicious. The bank has to be on notice of facts which would give rise to a suspicion of the particular fraud which has led to the loss of the money. And I think some of that is also picked up in the facts on Singularis as well, because Again, they're tied to the actual specific transactions because I think some of them were paid to a hospital and the suggestion in in the judgments is that the bank was aware that they may not be genuine transactions themselves. So, Mm. as you say, it's not this idea that there's just a dodgy or something not quite right. It has to be specific notice of these particular transactions. It's quite interesting, actually, how that's tying to the specific payment instruction and how we get actually circle back to Philip and Barclays, because one of the arguments in that case, of course, for the bank, was that it's all about fraud in the instruction, as opposed to some kind of external fraud. And I wonder if there's a tension between those two cases in terms of whether Philip is actually controversial. Do either of you have a view on on that? I mean, I think probably, I suppose it probably is, in the sense that we would say it could be a departure from what the previous cases have said. And there may be an argument that in the actual Court of Appeal decision itself, there is it's not entirely clear the basis on which they're making that decision. I suppose, as we sort of talked about, it's also being appealed. And there is also the question that it's just on a particular strikeout point. So the actual decision in terms of how it applies to the facts will obviously go back to the Court of Appeal. But I personally think it is a controversial case, but I don't know whether you have any differing views. I think it's uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens on the appeal. And if it does go back to trial, then I think it will raise a whole host of issues about what Quinscare really is, because actually that case, I think there are quite a few allegations about the bank's systems and controls, whereas Traditionally, Quinscare has been about notice and been about what does the bank know and does that mean the bank should have stopped the payment? And that doesn't really work in in the Philip case. So the claim is put more in terms of you should have had better 
fraud prevention software, you should have had better systems and controls for spotting that Mrs. Philip was being defrauded. And I think that sort of development is going to become quite important for claimants because as we move away from the paradigm Quintscare situation of the yeah. fraudster going into the bank with the cheque that he's paying to himself instead of on behalf of his company and more towards these international frauds which are going, you know, potentially payments that are going through automatically, the focus, I think, from claimants is definitely going to become much more on what could the bank have done to prevent that, those automatic payments happening. Because they seem to be relying on AML, mm. anti-money laundering, KYC processes to say, well, had you done those properly for, in terms of what the reasonable standard is across the banking industry, you as a bank would have been aware of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And if we work on that premise, that would have been enough to trigger the Quintacare duty. I mean, do we think that's a viable route in terms of expanding Quintacare? I mean, is, is that principled or is there a distinction between AML and the Quintacare investigation? I mean, I also think it's tied up with some of the issues that come out of Quintico as well. I mean, they're obviously talking about a reasonable banker. So again, I don't know whether that's one way in which claimants are sort of trying to introduce this idea of systems, processes, how would a reasonable banker have actually dealt with these transactions, which, as you say, I don't know whether purely that is what Quintcare was actually dealing with when it's about if they're actually on notice of the particular fraud, how would then the reasonable banker have acted? So, I mean, yes, I mean, I think it will be interesting to see, A, how it's dealt with if it does go to the Supreme Court. But then, as Ros says, when it actually goes back to the first instance judge is how that will play out on the facts. Because I think we'll come on to talk about this, but one of the potential defences is contributory negligence. So in Philip and Barclays, you know, there's a significant causation argument there because it seems to be that the individuals were incredibly duped by the fraudsters. So so what seems to have happened is the police actually came round and suggested that they may be victims of a fraud. And apparently the fraudsters tipped them off that this may happen. And then a phone call was made to the couple that appeared to come from the NCA, which then confirmed that the other fraudster was a genuine person who was acting for the FCA. And then there's also suggestions that the couple lied to the bank about their previous dealings with the fraudsters. So when those issues obviously come back to be heard at the trial, it's obviously going to be a key point for the bank and the bank's defence as to whether if they had made further checks, if they had done further work, would that actually have actually made any difference? And what's also quite interesting is that that was an issue that actually came up in Quince Care itself. I think the judge said that he didn't think that any of the further inquiries that the bank would have made would have averted the loss. Yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I think Quince Care generally, we see these decisions in the principle, and it, it's quite easy to forget sometimes that really this is about refraining, putting in a, a sort of state of suspension for a while. <laughs> Whilst, whilst you're on notice of a particular set of circumstances. And there was a debate, actually, wasn't there, Ros, in the summary judgment um, hearing in Nigeria before, as he then was, Professor Andrew Burroughs, QC, sitting as a Deputy High Court judge, about whether there's something more in Quinscare, a positive duty to go out and make inquiries. And obviously, that's something which doesn't really 
but we can lose sight of it because uh, we're always focused on the extent of the duty itself rather than what happens at the other end of the funnel. Yeah, I think that point actually remains rather unclear because it's always been expressed in terms of a, or it's often expressed as a as a duty just not to pay. And then the Court of Appeal in the Nigeria Summary Judgment said, uh, Mrs. Lady Justice Rose said, well, often it would, it would just depend on the facts, what you need to do. Sometimes you will go back to your customer and make inquiries. Sometimes there may not be somebody at the customer to whom those inquiries can be made. And so I think that is still very much an area of uncertainty as regards Quince Care. Like what, what, okay, so you, you must not make the payment, but what should you do then? And how do you get yourself off notice, if that's the right expression? And I think a, another thing that comes out in Singularis and also in both of the Supreme Court and also the first instance decision is the point about as you were saying, whether there is a sort of a more positive duty on the bank. So there was a suggestion that uh, denial essentially of the of the claim may prevent customers from bringing these types of claims. But the suggestion in the first decision that was that there was reliance on, on what's called banks and other financial institutions to play an important part in reducing and uncovering financial crime and money laundering. And that was... Um, I think that was Mrs. Justice Rose at the first instance, and then that's commented on, I think, with approval by Baroness Hale in the Supreme Court. But again, within that, the suggestion of uncovering financial crime and money laundering is that getting towards this positive duty to actually take steps beyond just being put on notice to actually say, well, I'm not actually on notice of the fraud, but something maybe doesn't seem right. Do I need to make further investigations to see whether there is a fraud? I think that those quotations are often slightly taken out of context because really when you look at the context in which the court was talking about the duty to uncover financial crime and so on I think that was in rather specific context of the points that were raised in Singularis about attribution and so on and and she was really saying well there's no point in having a duty to prevent these payments being made in in suspicious circumstances if you can then just get around it by saying oh well um, it's there's circularity because the claimant is should be treated as this in the same position as the fraudster, you then you completely undermine the whole point of the duty. I think that that's all it means. And but taken out of context mm. and standing in isolation, they do look like quite generalist statements yeah. about the duties on banks. I, I agree. And I think they'll definitely continue to be quoted in the future for sure. So thinking practically, what can banks be doing to better protect themselves going forward against Quinscare type claims? Well, I think the obvious area is the one that, that I've touched on already, which is contractual terms. And it, it is clear from the Court of Appeal and, and First Instance Judgment in the Nigeria case that it is possible to exclude this duty altogether, but it will take clear words to do it. And so uh, banks would need to think about that Obviously, there might be uh, implications in trying to put in too extreme an exclusion and you might end up in difficulty under ACTA or that type of thing. So it might be that banks want to have this gross negligence limitation, which was obviously effective um, for the bank in the Nigeria case. I think there obviously needs to be uh, training that, that you know, 
the banks obviously do already in relation to anti-money laundering and fraud. But all of that will also be useful in preventing claims uh, of this type. And, And as we've touched on already, quite a lot of the bank's defences in this uh, in this space are to do with software and spotting patterns automatically just simply because of the way international commerce works now you can't expect individuals sitting in an office to be spotting this sort of thing so uh, as we've said it, it may be that that's the way the claims end up developing more more in terms of looking at what the bank systems and controls are so that that's an obvious area for the banks to be thinking of which they all, well, they all are anyway obviously it's interesting because that, that is, I think, a direction of travel right now with some of these claims. But still, Quinscare is about the reasonable standard, the reasonable banker. And I mean, it's difficult to actually work out what the standards are right now across the industry in terms of these automated systems of monitoring and such like, and, and what their purpose actually is. And we've discussed a little bit about the distinction between AML and the Quinscare notice investigation. Do we think we need there needs to be more kind of cooperation between banks on a on an industry standard basis to work out what these standards really are, or is or is that tempting fate too much? Well, I think there are industry wide, very detailed industry wide standards on AML, but that's not the same thing as Quince Care, and in fact, that's one thing that comes out of the Nigeria judgment that a lot of the expert evidence in that case was to do with anti money laundering standards which the judge said actually were not of a great deal of assistance when looking at the question of notice for quince care purposes. So I think there there is a lot of regulation and there is a, a fair degree of industry standards already set in the anti-money laundering sphere. But as regards quince care, I think the problem is that the facts of individual cases are normally very specific. So obviously you can give bankers training about how to spot fraud, but the the situations where such a fraud might arise are so varied that it's quite hard to come up with general standards that are anything other than very high level, probably. I mean, there is also, certainly in relation to APP fraud, there is the um, CRM code, which is obviously being signed up by a number of banks. But that at this stage is, is, is voluntary. And I think in in Philip, it was introduced in 2019. So it was after the mm. particular transactions. And also importantly, it doesn't apply to international payments yes. as well. Yeah, so it wouldn't so, have applied. Yeah. So I think that's, I mean, there is that code in relation to the APP fraud. There is also a consultation paper that was put out late last year by the payment services regulator in relation to what they thought were the proposals in order to deal with the APP fraud. And one of them was to make reimbursement for scam victims mandatory. Yes, I think that's definitely the political direction of travel as regards APP fraud, because there's been such an explosion of that, yeah. that it's it's on on many people's radar and, it, and it's obviously a, quite a political issue now. So I think I think we can expect that that to become law, the making of the compensation uh, compulsory. So that may actually end up diminishing the potential impact for banks of Philip, mightn't it? Because if they have to give, if they're having to give compensation anyway, there may be fewer 
claim. So obviously the, the, the Philip yeah. situation itself would still have led to a claim. Yeah. I mean, I think also one of the other issues at the moment is, I think under the code, there is an ability for the banks not to pay if the customer acted unreasonably. Yeah. And I think that the suggestion seems to be that around 50% of those uh, claims aren't actually being paid. So I think that is potentially one of the reasons why there is this push on the consumer side. And then also, as you say, on the government side in order to actually introduce some legislation to try and what they would perceive to be to remedy that. Yes. And actually, if we go back to Peter Watts, that's what he says is the appropriate path as regards Quince Care itself. He says it, it, if you want to create a duty of this type, really it should be a matter for the government, not for the courts to start implying terms. But uh, as we said, that, that ship has sailed. Think about ships being sailing. Where do we go from here? What do we think are going to be the sort of hot topics in the direction of travel over the next couple of years? Well, I think there are several cases that still have some way to run. Obviously, you're still waiting for the judgment uh, in Stamford. There are other cases making their way through the courts now still and up to the higher courts. So I think we're going to see the, the boundaries of the Quince Care duty continue to be tested over the next few years. And as I say, we may get some action from central government on APP fraud. But I think that, that, that this story still has some way to run. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it comes back to the to what we were talking about at the beginning about Quince Care is that there is that tension within the duty itself. So I think the issue will be that certain facts, certain situations will come to light that will mean that particular claimants will try and push it in one particular direction and it'll be up to the courts to decide what the position is in relation to the duty. So, for example, uh, the example of a new fact situation is uh, a case, called, a recent case called Tulip Trading, in which a an attempt was made to argue that Quincecare should apply to cryptocurrencies and to the to the Bitcoin type situation, and that was rejected uh, on a summary basis by the court. But you can already see that that uh, parties are going to take the Quincecare concept and try and apply it to these new factual situations. So some way to go on that, I think. So we're calling this episode Quince Care Part One. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. So there we have it. An interesting discussion on where we are now in terms of the Quince Care duty and where we might be in the future. Once again, I'm grateful to George Hoare of Reed Smith and Rosalind Phelps QC of Fountain Court for joining me. And I hope our listeners enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. Mm-hmm.